you know what you know what this tastes like? It tastes like regret. Woo! Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 179 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another installment of our Breaking Bloody series, where we've been systematically disassembling the Bloody Mary cocktail so that you can better understand each of its myriad components. This time around, we're getting saucy, maybe a little zesty, and perhaps un poco picante. That's right, we're talking about spice, that flavor that puts some pep in your step and some fire in your belly. This episode goes out to all you pepperheads out there who enjoy some sweat on your brow and some zing in your chow. You hard-charging capsaicin crusaders, sriracha muchachas, and cholula chieftains. To be frank, it's going to be a red-hot ride, so hold on to your Scovilles, pour yourself a glass of milk, and for the love of God, keep your hands away from your eyes and other sundry mucous membranes. Of course, I couldn't tackle this inferno on my own. I am... Just one man, after all, so I enlisted the help of a few companions who are better versed than I in the chemesthetic realm of trigeminal flavor experience. First up, there's Dr. Alyssa Nolden. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Alyssa Nolden. She's a flavor scientist at the University of Massachusetts who studies how people experience the sensation of spicy compounds like capsaicin and, as luck would have it, ethanol. Next, meet John Shope. Hi, my name is John Shope. John is a friend of mine, but for the purpose of this episode, he's our human crash test dummy who agreed to take a ramekin of the world's spiciest sauces straight to the face and walk us through what happens in his body as the trauma sets in. Rounding out our panel of experts is Sarah Kolk. Hello, my name is Sarah Kolk. She's a food scientist at Silver Spring Foods, makers of some of the world's finest horseradish products. And she's here to explain that second variety of spice experience derived not from peppers, but from innocuous-looking tubers. This episode, we'll hear primarily from Melissa and John, and next time, Sarah is going to take the reins and show us a thing or two about horseradish. Now, what I realized, having conducted these interviews on the sensation of spiciness in our food and drink, was that we could have done an entire season of podcast episodes solely on this topic. It's like a scientific and experiential bramble thicket where flavor, gas chromatograph results, and brow sweat all wield equal power to sway our opinions about what is hot, what is delicious, and the words we use to describe our experiences. Also wrapped up in this conversation are questions about individual personality and collective culture, which very quickly lead us into territory that can be defined as squishy at best. But that's what we do here. We tackle the squishy subjects other folks like to gloss over. And the only way to do that is to get granular. So I wanted to kick us off here by explaining why spice is important to the Bloody Mary cocktail and then defining a couple terms that are important to our perception of spicy flavors. 
If you're familiar with Breaking Bloody, you'll know that we've already gone through and analyzed varieties of tomato experience with tomato expert Craig LeHoulier, and we've also done a deep dive on different savory ingredients like Worcestershire sauce in our umami tsunami episode. If we skip over the citrus or more generally acid component of the Bloody Mary, which we've covered in a number of our normal episodes, the last set of common ingredients that we really haven't covered are spicy things like hot sauce, horseradish, or cayenne pepper, which you'll always see featured in a Bloody Mary. Like, always. So in this episode, we're going to rock some pretty exciting knowledge about this feisty set of ingredients while also making some connections between spice and this cocktail's traditional role as a hangover cure. But like I said a moment ago, there are a couple definitions we need to address right out of the gate. The first term we need to cover is chemisthesis. And I'm not always in love with the way that some things are defined on Wikipedia, but in this case, I think it's just perfect for our purposes. Quote, chemisthesis is the chemical sensitivity of the skin and mucous membranes. Chemesthetic sensations arise when chemical compounds activate receptors associated with other senses that mediate pain, touch, and thermal perception. These chemical-induced reactions do not fit into the traditional sense categories of taste and smell. End quote. You know how we talk about texture in cocktails? Well, that's not something our taste buds or our olfactory receptors can really weigh in on. So it stands to reason that there would be other mechanisms responsible for sensing things like heat, cold, pain, numbing, and our more general experience of texture. So now that we know that the bucket term for this group of sensations is chemisthesis, you may also wonder what sensory structure is responsible for it. That honor goes to the trigeminal nerve, which in a manner of speaking is your face and head nerve. This thing is fascinating. First off, the word trigeminal basically means thrice twinned, right? Tri means three, and Gemini are the twins. The twin aspect refers to the fact that you have a branch of this nerve on each half of your body, which is a phenomenon called bilateral symmetry. And in both cases, it splits into, wait for it, three branches. The ophthalmic nerve, which handles your eyes and cranium, the maxillary nerve, which deals with your nose and midface, and the mandibular nerve, which serves the mouth and jaws. So to recap, the trigeminal nerve senses things like heat, cold, spice, texture, and other non-taste bud stuff, and we call this general bucket of sensations chemisthesis. Here's food scientist Sarah Kolk on why she thinks this sensation is interesting to consider in a culinary context. So sensory science is something that's been really near and dear to me lately. And since I study this pungent compound horseradish, uh, I find that I'm connecting with pungency maybe on a more academic level now than I ever have. And I think about it a lot more. Um, so chemisthesis is something that I crave in foods and I never re really would have pinpointed that had I not been doing this research that I'm doing, but you have to have excitement in your food, or I have to have excitement in my food. And if you have the gustation properties, your sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, that's one aspect, that's one layer of a flavor. And then you have your 
trillions of odorants that you can that your your body can detect and that's your second layer of interesting in your flavor but then you add chemesthesis and you start involving your sense of pain and your sense of temperature through uh, dermal receptors and I, I can't consider flavor without considering chemesthesis because to me chili peppers ginger onions, garlic, food is nothing without these pungent flavors. And involving all of these sensory systems at once, I think, is what makes the flavor that much more exciting. In any conversation about chemisthesis, I find it helpful to define the compounds you're looking at and what they bring to the table in terms of flavor. First, there's capsaicin, which is normally incorporated into the Bloody Mary via hot sauce or cayenne pepper. Then, of course, there's horseradish, which derives its spice from an interaction between a couple of different compounds, which is really interesting. These are the two spice ingredients you're going to encounter in the lion's share of Bloody Mary recipes. But we do have to throw in a couple honorable mentions here to piperine, which is the active substance in peppercorns and cubebs, and of course, ethanol, which also elicits a burning or hot sensation, but only in certain concentrations. However, like I said, the stars of the show are really capsaicin and horseradish, so we'll begin in part one of this two-part spice session by trying to understand how flavor researchers study the effects of capsaicin on the human body, and we're also going to do a little psychology and physiology experiment on our spice-loving friend, John Shope. To kick things off, let's hear from Dr. Alyssa Nolden from UMass, who conducts specialized studies on compounds like capsaicin and ethanol using carefully titrated solutions at different concentrations. Here she is explaining a little bit about how those experiments are run. What I find really interesting with this research is you're giving participants um, pure concentrations of ethanol or capsaicin diluted in water. Um, so you're presenting them with something very basic that they wouldn't necessarily come across in everyday life, um, but you can still learn so much about what they're perceiving. So we break it down and look at like um, a single concentration or single compound, um, and we uh, would present them at different concentrations. So something like 10 to 11, 12 concentrations, and you might want to present them in duplicate. Um, and what we would have them do is we would familiarize them with a scale that we use to rate intensity. And the scale is developed based on logarithmic understanding of the terms barely detectable, weak, moderate, strong, very strong, and the strongest imaginable sensation that you can experience. Um, and this is to account for individual differences in perception. And so we train them up on the scale using remembered sensations such as the sweetness of cotton candy, um, the bitterness of coffee, something like staring into the sun. So we want to get uh, ratings in context of all things, not just taste. And that could be a challenge in its own of getting participants to understand the use of the scale. But then once we um, think that they have a really good understanding of the scale, then we can present them with these samples, usually randomized order. And you can uh, take a sample into your mouth, usually about 5 to 10 mils, spit it out, and then you would rate the intensity on the scale. Um, for these compounds, we, would, um, we can ask which sensations we're interested in. So we might have a scale for each quality, so bitterness, oral um, warming or burning, 
Um, you could sometimes say irritation. Those fall on the same scale, but at different concentrations, you might perceive warming, or as higher concentrations, you hear, feel irritation or oral burn. So that can be a challenge. Um, but then also you can do sweetness, umami, et cetera. Uh, so once we have collected all the data for all these participants, we can look at how the each concentrations performed, both um, in intensity and each quality. So we get a nice separation of at lower concentrations, we'll find um, more bitterness. But then at you increase your concentration, you're going to get a lot more oral burn. And what we see is even at higher concentrations, you're not going to get any more intense. It kind of levels off for, for individual or for this group. And one of my favorite things to look at within the data is looking at how much they prefer or how much spicy food they eat. Or you can ask what heat level do you prefer in salsa is a great way to separate participants. And you can see huge what we call bimodal distribution or two different groups um, with uh, individuals who prefer like mild salsa or don't eat that much spicy food, a lot more oral burn um, they're perceiving in these concentrations than individuals who don't. And we can do something similar with ethanol, um, looking at alcohol intake as well. What you just heard is a very dedicated researcher explaining the methodology that governs very carefully controlled studies. And if you're wondering, Capsaicin research has really come a long way in the past couple decades because we're only just recently able to isolate this compound and carefully titrate it to exact experimentally manipulatable levels. But the cool thing about talking with these folks who run interesting experiments is that they're not just sitting there with their noses in the data. Before and after you conduct an experiment, you need to consider what implications it may have on the wider academic and social landscape, which prompted me to ask Alyssa a very specific question about the role that personality might play in governing someone's proclivity towards spicy substances. Oh, there's so much to dig into there. Uh, man, where to start? Well, uh, just as a couple of maybe little clarifications, you know, when you say a bimodal distribution, what I picture is, you know, instead of a standard distribution, which is the bell curve that most of us are familiar with, a bimodal distribution would almost be like, you know, the, the camel with two humps, right? So instead of having one uh, hump in the middle, you have two humps and a dip in the middle. And, you know, when we see these types of distributions in especially the social sciences like psychology uh, or, you know, biology or anything that deals with sensory perception, I suppose, um, you know, chances are there's something pretty significant and interesting going on, you know, at least at least from from my perspective, you, you sort of have to ask, like, well, what is it that separates these people into these two distinct groups? So to that end, um, I guess my follow up on this kind of portion of the interview would be, do you have any speculations about what might be causing this separation between these two types of people? Have you done a big five personality index and, and seen that certain personalities might separate this? Or might there be something related to, you know, uh, people who are super tasters or people who are more sensitive? Um, are, you know, any, anything like that come up? Those are all great questions. And I think there is definitely not just one. Um, and I think there's a lot of different things playing into whether or not, I think it's most easy to, to talk about in terms of um, spicy, uh, who, you know, people who prefer spicy food and those who, who don't or those who perceive it as more intense. 
Um, my specific area of research is looking at genetics and looking at genetic variability. And the, that receptor for capsaicin is TRPV1. And so we're still learning about genetic variants in the uh, TRPV1 that can explain those distribution. But my um, experience is, is that it's more likely your your how much you're consuming it at home. So you can learn to like something even if your first experience is really intense. Um, and a good way to explain that is kind of um, learning to like bitter beers or or learning to like bitter coffee. You know, first you add a lot of cream and sugar, and then over time you learn to like that bitterness. And I think that's what the, might be the case for spicy foods. Um, the more that you eat it, the more that the um, you learn to like it and you, the burn's not as intense. You also mentioned about personality test. That's not something I specifically studied, uh, but a colleague, a good friend of mine who did her graduate degree at the same time, um, as I was doing some of these studies, she was looking at some of these questions about um, personality differences and what might drive some individuals to consume more spicy food than others. It was kind of a, a fun personality test to take. Some of the questions were, you know, did you like driving fast on a windy road or do you like roller coasters? And there just seems to be some connection to, you know, risk-taking behavior and uh, body, private body consciousness um, and intake of spicy food. But there's so many factors that can go into um, consumption of, of spicy food. Uh, one of the things being having access to diverse cuisine in, in your area, um, I think probably is part of it, or your uh, family cooking, how, how much you're exposed to it, and the, just the availability of it. Mm, that's really fascinating. When you say private body consciousness, what does that mean in lay terms? The way that I describe it is... Um, are you aware that maybe you have a fever or like kind of like you're overheating or or that maybe you're dehydrated or, you know, those kinds of um, how much are you aware of what's going on in your body? And so some people who are um, have more of those uh, senses um, are more sensitive to changes like that. My, and actually, I, I don't know which direction it is, if they prefer or don't prefer spicy food as much. That's actually, I'm not, I, don't, I can't recall the connection. Um, but there was a connection to, you know, how, how are they like self-regulating their, their internal cues. Alyssa gave me a few questions to ask our spicy cosmonaut, John Shope, to determine if he might fall within some of the general parameters observed using the Big Five Personality Traits Index. Let's see how he does. Roller coasters, yes or no? Oh, yeah, roller coasters. Um, I mean, I think the older I get, the harder it is for me to handle it, just because it's like now I'm like starting to get a little weak, but I thrill see every roller coaster, absolutely. Okay. Um, imagine a world similar to our world, but not our world, because you're obviously a very responsible person, uh, you know, a, a loving father, um, over or under the speed limit. Oh man, the limit. Okay. Look, I'm, I'm not Johnny Lawbreaker out here, guys. Let's put, I mean, we're putting this on a podcast, but, um, that's what I'm saying. Different world, different not world. this world over or under. I would, I would probably be a little over. I would say over. Just a little. I'm not going to reasonably. Over. I'm not a. I'm not a race car driver. I'm not one of those types, man. But I, uh, yeah, there's a threshold that's always needing to be breached, right? When you're around a lot of people, do you gain energy or lose energy? Gain, hundred percent. Around people, yeah, that's how I feed. 
Um, and I don't even think I need to ask the last one, but do you feel more alive when you're relaxing or when you're out hustling? Oh man, I'm on, um, when I'm high energy, that's when I'm feeling my absolute best. I'm, I'm, I'm making moves I'm making things happen and I'm, I'm having experiences and a good time. Come on now. Everybody already heard that in the voice. Yes. Yeah. 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 Relaxing is fine. I do. There's a time and place for all of it, but no, nah, I need to be out there. I guess it should come as no surprise that our friend John fits pretty snugly within some of the scientifically vetted personality norms for folks who tend to like spicy stuff. But the presiding question is a Darwinian one. How did he come to be this way? Was it nature or was it nurture? How'd you get into spicy peppers and hot sauces? It, you know, is, is it something that you feel like you were born with or is it something that you cultivated over many years? Tell, tell us about it. Definitely, definitely cultivated. You know, I mean, I was pranked as a as a younger kid by my older sister. She gave me one of those Chinese like dried peppers that had been covered in sauce, so it just looked all sticky and sweet. And she told me it was a Twizzler, and I might have been six, and I ate it. And she's just on the phone with one of her friends, laughing at me while I'm like dying in the bathroom. You would have figured that this would have traumatized me permanently, but what ends up happening? is, you know, I get into the teenage years and you catch people who are eating spicy stuff and they just aren't phased. And you're like, how is this not hurting you? And then the real evolution from there, because that's where it's like machismo. Now I'm just trying to test my guts and see if I can do this sort of thing. I end up in a restaurant bar. Last one I worked at a place called Food Matters. And it was all about seasonal and locally grown. And um, they had harvested the ghost pepper, which was just some myth that we had read about, you know? And so we were like, sitting down, staring at this thing in the kitchen, gloves on, honoring this pepper, and do and did tiny thin slices to experience what at the time was the hottest pepper in the world. And I would probably say I might have had habanero at that point. You know, this was this was like new territory. And we sit down and we have the one bite and we're like, wow, that's brutally hot, right? And then um, my chef was like, well, have fun with that guys. He walks off me and uh, another chef sat down and we're like, you want to, you want to finish this thing? And we split the thing in half and we ate the whole pepper raw right there in the kitchen. And, um, it was insanely painful and it was like almost instantaneously like, yep, this is a bad idea. But, uh, there's such a thrill in this threshold of knowing that you're getting ready to do something that could potentially harm you, not permanently, because of the science of it all, it's just your brain confusing you into thinking that you're actually on fire. You actually aren't burning off receptors in your tongue, right? It's just a experience that can prolong for a while and you have to just engage it. And so now for me, I've already gone through, I'm not going to eat like a raw pepper on, on our show today, right? But I am going to go to the threshold for you guys because I think a lot of people have been waiting to see if I can torture myself because I keep eating this hot stuff and it, it does it, I'm partially phased and they're just like, what hurts this guy? So, um, yeah, now I've just gotten to the point where I think I've just, what is the word for it? I've, uh, I've trained my palate, you know, and now I've just adapted to it. So, I mean, Sriracha is like regular ketchup to me now and, uh, anything above like, you know, habanero is where I start really getting any kind of sensations for heat, uh, because of my tolerance. Unfortunately for John, he isn't about to shoot a ramekin full of Sriracha. Whereas Alyssa, in her university setting, is confined to operating within the safety rails prescribed by internal review boards, we here at Modern Bar Cart like to live on the wild side a little bit and indulge ourselves not so much in the center of the bell curve, 
but in those racy edge cases. That's where John comes in. Here he is at the precipice of his plunge into a fiery world of capsaicin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're about to to ingest so that we can contextualize it in a Scoville sense. So by all means, I am a fan and, and heat seeker, uh, but I am still all but merely human. And what I did today is I made a combination of two hot sauces, one that's just super obnoxious and one that has become quite popular through uh, certain YouTube channels um, that people recognizably know that, oh, this is a hot sauce that hurts people. So I combined the bomb, which is a, a habanero smoked chipotle hot sauce with something called 357 Mad Dog. It's their anniversary edition, which is made from capsicum extract, capsaicin extract. Let's say it right if we're going to be out here. But um, so if to give you some kind of precursor, a Carolina Reaper on the low end is 1.4 million, right? And uh, this is around 6 million. So this is, a, and, I, and I got two teaspoons in here. And it's a very painful thing. And I'm only doing it because I think people have been like, what hurts this guy? And, uh, and I, I'm confident that this is not going to feel good. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you've, you, so you've never done this before? You've never done this particular combo before? No. And I always use drops of stuff like this because it is so intense. And I mean, uh, I don't know what you can see, but that's a pretty full, it's like two teaspoons, I think. It's a, it's a lot. I, I don't know if I'm going to shoot all of it, but I'm going to coat the whole mouth. And, uh, and just, okay, and just yeah. see what uh, what kind of entertaining uh, reactions we get from it, right? You want me to walk you through what I'm going through? Yeah. So, so for folks at home, uh, John is John's going to take a a little, uh, you know, take whatever dosage you see fit. I am, I, I again, I am not the one who's taking this straight to the face. So I will let I will let you dictate what the serving size is. But, but what we're going to do is. Um, you know, you're just going to walk us through what's happening in your body. And, and I really want to get physiological here. So um, do whatever, do whatever you, you need to do to hype yourself up for. And, um, and I, I may ask a few questions, but feel free to just, you know, you use your normal personality to just walk us through it and like, tell us what's happening uh, in your mouth, your lips, your nose, your chest, and, and just let us, let us know how you're feeling. Okay. 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 And take your, take your time whenever you're ready. First off, when you smell this, this is, um, it smells angry. If that's a good flavor profile I can give you, you can get all of those like roasted Chipotle notes from the bomb, a sauce that I've had before that I don't think necessarily tastes all that good. And it's very painful. Whereas this other thing, like I said, it's just concentrated. So there is a fruity note. This is so funny. I feel like I'm trying to talk about wine here, but it does have a lot of aromatics. And it immediately is making my, my palate salivate before I ever put it in the mouth. I'm going to go ahead and do this. Wish me luck. So he's taking pretty much the full dose, a couple teaspoons. It's really flavorful. It's got instantaneous saliva outburst too. Receptors are reacting. I'm feeling the heat coming right through. You hear my lips smacking. Sorry if that sounds a little obnoxious. But it's um, it is coating my entire palate, and it's not dissipating. The heat is not in one specific location. 
It is literally all over the entire palate. And it's moving up to the front, which is causing me to salivate insanely. Talking is making me lick my lips, which is a horrible, bad idea. Because now my lips feel like they're burning. Because those, uh, that's now attached itself to the lips. It's slowly moving down the esophagus. I'm starting to feel it in the back of the throat, where it's like a sticky heat. And it's, um, it is pungent. It's like a little small uh, barnyard fire right there in the back of the palate. As our daredevil John engages in gladiatorial combat with two of the world's spiciest hot sauces, I'd like to pause and introduce you to a term that I learned several years ago from friend of the podcast, Dr. Dan McCall, who runs the Gettysburg Odor and Flavor Lab at my alma mater, Gettysburg College. The term is called benign masochism, and according to Dan, it was coined by a gentleman named Paul Rosin out of the University of Pennsylvania a few decades ago. Here's Dr. McCall with a working definition. Intense heat from peppers is painful, and usually we reject painful things, but yet we like negative stimulation in the case of horror films or roller coasters. We like to be scared. So, so we embrace these things that are a little aversive in context in which we can control them. And what, what did you call it? Benign masochism? Benign, benign masochism, yeah. So it's a sort of masochism, but it's benign because we know we won't come to any harm. Dan was also kind enough to provide me with some research papers on this subject, and although we don't have time to do a full lit review, I thought I'd pull out some of the main themes for you. In a 2013 summary paper, Paul Rosen and colleagues were able to pull some general trends associated with benign masochism across a wide variety of human activities. For example, watching very scary or very sad movies, the taste of strong alcohol, bitterness, or capsaicin, disgusting jokes, thrill rides, and even the hurts-so-good physical pain of an intense massage. A couple findings that I found really interesting from this research were that A, people tend to enjoy their physiological reactions to negative experiences, and B, people most enjoy levels of discomfort that are just on the tolerable side of uncomfortable. This second fact, to me, could have huge implications on how we think about the role of spice in a Bloody Mary. Another 2013 paper by Bastian and colleagues summarizes three different studies conducted to explore the relationship between physical pain and flavor perception. They discovered three significant findings. First, physical pain is linked to greater enjoyment of a flavor. So, in essence, what happened in this set of experiences that participants were split into pain and no pain conditions and then asked to eat a chocolate flavored biscuit in this case. What happened was those in the pain condition rated their liking of that biscuit as significantly higher than those in the no pain condition. Next, the researchers found that physical pain increases perceived intensity of tastes. So same kind of pain and no pain conditions, and the participants in the pain group rated sweet, sour, salty, and bitter tastes as more intense than people in the no pain condition. Finally, the researchers demonstrated that pain made people more sensitive to the presence of a flavor by showing that participants in a pain condition were more likely to correctly identify a flavor extract at lower concentrations than those in a non-pain condition. I know that sounds like a mouthful, but in short, here's what we learned. Pain makes us enjoy flavors more, 
experience them more intensely and identify them with greater sensitivity. So I think the logical takeaway here is that if you want people to enjoy eating at your restaurant or drinking at your cocktail bar just that little bit more, you should consider hiring something like a spanking sommelier who can go around and inflict just the right amount of pain on your guests. Be sort of a 21st century update to the professional foot ticklers employed by the court of Catherine the Great. I'm not kidding about that one, look it up. So knowing that benign masochism is something we could consider normal psychology, that is something that most, or at the very least many normal people tend to experience, I think we should check back in on John and see how he's doing in the realm of atypical flavor experiences. I don't know if you can see it, if my eyes are starting to water. Oh, ooh, that was a bad thing. When it gets really hot, sometimes people hiccup because you're breathing so much. Oh no, that's always bad. Cause then it can get into your lungs and that gives you that sensation. Oh God, here we go. That gives you that sensation of heartburn, which I'm not experiencing. But the hiccups can lead to that, and I'm getting a little nervous about it. My whole face feels like it's pretty much on fire. I'm sweating on the sides of my neck here, down the back here, on my forehead. Look, I mean, I was I was dry hair. It looks like I just came out of the rain or something. I'm starting to really sweat. Am I starting to look pink? Yeah, you, you all actually almost immediately I could tell that that you were flushed. I'm gonna give you the old hot ones here. Careful around your eyes, although you didn't you you're not touching a hot. I'm one trying to I'm trying to avoid it. Yeah, and I made sure that I only drank from the uh, the vessel. The concern here is that the only thing I have to drink is water. Well, that's a natural reaction for you to be like, oh my gosh, it's hot, it's hot. I want water, but water just spreads it, and really you need like a fat, or an oil, or alcohol. So I might take a little sip of this bloody loud and I made using watershed gin by Katonkin Creek. Mm-hmm. Not a bad move. Which I also put a very hot sauce in to sort of do like a primer. That's quite delicious. I'm actually getting a lot of uh, brightness out of it now that I was not getting earlier because I was only getting heat. Um, tongue feels like it's um, blistering, which it isn't. Lips feel like they are blistering, which they are not. It has now gone into the lower portion of the chest, where it just kind of feels like there's a slow, like molten lava-like sensation. <laughs> Oof. I don't know why, but it's making me laugh really hard. But it's um, it's getting into the gut, and this is where I already know this is going to get ugly. There's apparently like receptors in your stomach as well that capsaicin likes to attach to, which can cause some really painful cramps. Um which I think I'm starting to feel. <laughs> it's a, it is a, it is a hot sauce that I, that I just took there guys. Um, and it, I don't feel like it's going to slow down. My guess is that this is going to be a 20 minute process. <laughs> oh, John. Well, uh, yeah. So we're about three or four minutes into this Ooh. right now. You, you've been able, you've been able to kind of walk us through all the way from the, from the nose straight to, you know, like you said, that molten lava sensation inside you. And, um, uh, so I, my I guess we'll, we'll pre- you are, man. I mean, like I, I would love to see on hot ones. Uh, you know, I think you'd, I think you would perform admirably, uh, for sure. Um, so st- try and stay, I mean, like, you know, in true hot ones fashion, 
you know, you just give me give me a quick wave if you need a break here and for for any reason. We t- we'll take a break, but I'm just gonna keep going here if, if we can. I'm gonna try to. I feel like it's the right way. I feel okay. like it's the right way to do, go. Just kind of walk through the process. Man, the yeah. stomach is really boiling right now. I mean, that's a lot of sauce. You know what? You know what this tastes like? It tastes like regret. Regret, indeed. I'm just glad I wasn't on the receiving end of all that capsaicin. And if there's anything that this stunt demonstrates, it's that we don't want that much spice in our Bloody Marys. It sends us back to a word that some more experienced home bartenders might take for granted. Balance. But this isn't just about modulating sweet and sour like in a daiquiri. We've got pretty much every possible flavor bouncing around in the Bloody Mary, and somehow we're supposed to bring them all into harmony. This task is further complicated by the fact that in most recipes, you're going to have multiple sources of things like spice, acid, and umami. Here's how John thinks about creating balance with spice when he's stuck making food and drink for us mere mortals. Set aside your high threshold for spice for a second. Um, How do you think about creating a balanced level of spice in uh, a dish that you might serve to other people, for example? Um, You know, and I guess really what I'm asking you is, you know, how much, how much is just enough and how much is too much? Well, so for most people, Tabasco and cayenne are kind of like the comfort levels. Habanero is really pushing it for people who are like, make me something spicy. And so I'll usually stop there if I'm making it for other people. And the key is making sure that you have a balance of acid, salt, sugar, or some kind of sweetness uh, to that heat and something fatty, some kind of protein. You balance those things out, you'll get that nice heat on the back end. You'll get the flavor of the of the peppers, but it won't be the only thing you're experiencing. And that's what's important for me is flavor, is making sure you're getting the entire sort of roundness of a of a dish. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and um, do you ever get the sense when when you are so like let's say you were to make a meal for yourself and and you know two or three other people who like you said, kind of stop around Tabasco slash cayenne. Is that meal at that point inherently uninteresting to you? Or as long as it's balanced, is it still interesting? Yeah, as long as it's balanced, it's still interesting. I mean, I mean, just about everything that I eat, I'll put some sort of a heat contest to the meal. And sometimes that's just red pepper flake or some Tabasco or some dried cayenne. It doesn't always go straight to this, you know, um, I think that there's a time and place for all of that. So in the perfect Bloody Mary, we want spice, but not too much. And the kicker is that the definition of what constitutes too much is going to vary from person to person, creating not only a flavor problem, but also a language problem. Thinking back to our benign masochism research, is there a world in which everyone could have the perfect level of spice for their palate? Is there a way to bring each individual right to the edge of discomfort but not cross that line? Perhaps not. But I do think there are ways to present Bloody Marys on a cocktail menu in a way that comes close to achieving that perfection. The key, it would seem, 
is to give people options. Think about other situations where there's an objective flavor fact that you need to communicate to people. My go-to example here is the doneness of a burger or a piece of meat, which can be communicated using a number, i.e. internal temperature, or a trade term like medium rare. When I, as a patron, say medium rare, you as a chef know exactly how to prepare that food to give me exactly what I want. A simpler example could just be the little chili pepper scores next to different dishes that you'll see on a Thai menu, for example. No chilies means mild, and the more chilies you add on, the spicier it gets. This may be a slightly blunter instrument than temperature-correlated doneness, but it still helps get people into the right neighborhood where they want to be. So if you were to ask me how I'd try to give people their perfect Bloody Mary if I ran a cocktail bar, here's what I'd do. I'd try to have at least three different Bloody Mary mixes on hand, mild, medium, and spicy. I'd take my time developing these mixes and have them evaluated by people who self-identify as enjoying each of those spice levels. This is important, right? You don't want a spice lover giving you feedback on your mild bloody mix. That just doesn't make sense. And in addition to dialing in the flavors, I'd also work to ensure that my spice levels remained vibrant and stable in each of these mixes rather than degrading. More on this subject in part two, where we talk horseradish. In terms of service, it seems like there's an opportunity to use garnishes creatively here. I'd craft a garnish to go with each of my different spice levels, which is great for the customers because they get a more tailored experience from a culinary standpoint, and also great for bartenders and servers because they'll know which drink has what spice level just by looking at that garnish. This means there's less risk of giving a fiery inferno of a drink to someone who doesn't want one. And let's be honest, in busy brunch situations or at high volume establishments where Bloody Marys tend to be served, mistakes like this are easy to make. So even though I think we're a far cry from being able to dial in the parts per million of capsaicin in your Bloody Mary, I think that creating options for people who have different relationships with spicy flavors is a great way to honor both the cocktail and the person who orders it. I'm Modern Bar Cart CEO Eric Koslick. I hope you enjoyed part one of this Breaking Bloody Spice Showcase. Be sure to join us next time for a horseradish tasting and analysis with our friend Sarah Kolk from Silver Spring Foods. But until then, remember, keep your masochism benign and be kind to your trigeminal nerve. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start 
a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Boldly.